Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. I decided this morning that this was going to be not just a one-part sermon, but a two-part sermon. And then I decided later this morning that this would not just be a two-part sermon, but a three-part sermon. And I think now I'm thinking this might be a four-part sermon, so just be ready for anything. But I know that today will be part one and, to, and part two will be September 5th. So at least you can take a note of that. Other than, other than that, only God knows. But it's a huge topic, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I realized early on that this was too much to tackle in one week, but uh, only could admit it uh, at the late, late hour of uh, uh, actually this morning. So anyway, Romans chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. So she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is true, that it is without error. And Lord, we also acknowledge that it is really easy when it comes to things that are beyond our understanding to either run from it or dismiss it or, or try to explain it away in, 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 in ways that we can make sense of. And Lord, we don't want to be guilty of that today. Lord, we want to be guilty of 
We want to be guilty of believing your word. We want to be guilty of, of, of believing you and of trusting you and of, and of not sidestepping tough issues because these affect our daily lives. So Lord, as we look in your word today, we pray you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would work it all for your glory and our good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is going to be either a two or a three or a four or a five part ser- sermon series now. I, I, uh, I don't know, but God does. But let me just say that Romans chapter 9 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible when it comes to the essential relationship between God and man. When it comes to how we ought to view the basic relationship between man and God, Romans 9 stands at the forefront. And it really ought to shape everything about how we view his sovereignty as well as our responsibility. But first, I want to give you a bit of personal testimony. When I was younger, if I had been asked to explain what God's sovereignty and my responsibility means, my answer would have been saturated with self-determination. You would have heard about my works, And my efforts and my worthiness, my ideas did not come from the Bible. They were just my own reasonings of how things ought to work or how they must work out. I was absorbed in the independent, self-sufficient, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that you and I all breathe here in America. I took my views with me to college. I was just a kid trying to figure out how things worked. I was just trying to survive every day. So I had my system all worked up, and I figured I was just fine. I I was justifying myself daily and not following Jesus. I was not born again. I did not know the Word of God. I did not know the Gospel. And so if, if you had asked me back then... What is the sovereignty of God? Here's how I would have answered. The sovereignty of God to me back then meant that he could do anything he wanted with me as long as I gave him permission. As long as I allowed him to. He could do anything he wanted that I allowed him to do. As long as I gave permission for him to act, he could do anything he wanted. It was like the poem Invictus. I wanted to be the captain of my soul. So I cherished and ended up worshiping the human autonomy that I I thought I had and the supposed ultimate self-determination of my will. It was the ultimate in self-delusion. I didn't even know how wrong I was. Just what I was doing. That's how I lived. Trying to slug it through each day I didn't know how long how wrong I was and I lived a long time like that and I even sadly had my worldview acknowledged and and affirmed by by well-meaning but mistaken Christians who thought the same way I did 
then God did something in my heart. It changed my mind. Through some painful circumstances and dramatic failings on my part, God gave me a good look at my sinfulness, at the reality of my own inability to save myself, my own inability to run my life, my utter failings in being my own functional Savior. And God showed me the foolishness of trying to act sovereign in my own life. It was not an easy time for me. It was like hell on earth. I was miserable. Now emotions run high and tempers short when your when your self-sufficient, man-centered worldview is crumbling all around you, and that's what was happening to me. And I didn't know it at the time, but God was in the process of saving me. God was in the process of bringing me to the end of myself so that I would see how utterly dependent I was on Him. That I would see how utterly inadequate I was as my own Savior and Lord and Sovereign and how sufficient He is. God put me in waters I couldn't navigate and I was literally up a creek without a paddle. I I was unable unable to, to help myself. I was guilty before God and I knew it. And I no longer could contend with the word of God. I could no longer fight against God and his word. Or even his people. Even Christians that I thought were were just out of their mind freaks because of what they believed and how they acted as a result. I did not know what was happening at the time. I could not have explained it very well. Not that I'm explaining it well now. I just could not have explained it back then. But looking back, after getting in the Word of God, I began to see what was really taking place, what, what God did. And, and it's basically this. I was spiritually dead, and God made me alive. Jesus brought my dead soul to life. He gave me faith as a gift, and I responded by faith. And what I saw that I had never even dreamt before is that God's sovereign hand of grace had been and and was guiding me. Fast forward in my life and at other points in my life over the last 28 years of knowing Christ. There have been times when God took me through the pain of painful self-examination and the horror of a fresh look at my sinfulness and my utter inability to do anything apart from Christ. And it is a process that leads to a, a deeper appreciation of the gospel. 
and a deeper trust, a fuller trust in the sufficiency of Christ. And it is a process God takes his children through of humbling, of deepening, of gracious and, and merciful dealing with us in love and in, in, in giving us the, the comfort that comes from the assurance when, when it's like you can't see, but the clouds then part and you understand. And, and you have Christ's assurance that literally envelops your soul. Now, I'm telling you all this for two reasons. One, to praise the glory of God's grace. To say, praise God for what he did in saving my soul. The second reason is to introduce a subject that is not easy to navigate. And I'm going to try to explain some things today and over a period of weeks that only those in Christ can understand, but that those in Christ find difficult to understand. I know. I'm in the same boat you are. These are not easy things to grasp. The, the, the idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and how the two are reconciled. But they are gifts from God meant to, to deepen our faith and to, for us to believe deeply by faith. This is a huge topic and it generates lots of feelings and emotions. I, I, I'm aware of that. So I'll say two things. One, I'm, I'm sensitive to where everyone's at. There's a, people are in a different place. I'm not, I didn't prepare this message for any one person in this body. This is for the body. The Lord, what, is your, what do your people need? I found out it was more than tying it up in a tidy bow and giving it to you in 35, 40 minutes. So we're going to take longer. Because this, this while, while it's going to stretch your mind and it'll stretch your heart and challenge you, it, it, it plays down. You've got to trust me. It hits you where you live, where the rubber meets the road in almost every instance of life, even if we don't see it or, or acknowledge that. So I understand that we've got to be, I've got to be sensitive. I am very sensitive to where people are at. And I also understand there is an element of mystery that is attached to this, this, this subject that is beyond all of us because we are finite and God is infinite. So there's an element of mystery. And I, I don't want to hurt anyone. There's, this is not aimed at blasting anyone out of the water because their views are wrong or whatever. But I, I'll just say this, that there are some of you who may find that you have been believing something that is less than biblical. There are, there are others of you that may find that you have put a, a thin veneer of looking like a Christian on top of an unsaved heart. And there are others that, that, that may realize that you have, what you have believed all along is right in line with the Bible. But maybe you didn't know how to put it into adequate wording to share with your family or your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers or people you meet in the supermarket or at the airport or wherever you go. God may give you new words to explain the, the truths and to share with others in need of the same mercy and grace that you have received. 
But when it comes to reconciling God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I personally think we make it a much more complicated and confusing and even combustible topic than it really is. And I want to say it in a way that even a young child can grasp. So the youngest among us, just raise your hand if you get it, okay? Um, I'll say it and boil it down into one simple sentence, and it's this. God is over all, and man is under God. God is over all, and man is under God. Uh, If you want it a bit spicier, you could just say God is completely over all, and man is completely under God. God over all, man under God. That's, that's it. You know, you, some of you may want to go home now. Um, but I, I hope you stay. I hope you choose out of your own free will to stay right now because you have the choice to be here or not. Some of you say, well, no, no, I was forced to be here. Uh, nevertheless, you are here and you are listening to a sermon and you are engaged to one degree or another. I don't see any earbuds or anything uh, maybe they're wireless, I don't know, but um, you're here. God is really in control, and we really aren't, much as we'd like to think we are. And we ultimately answer to Him. He will not answer to us. Sure, there might be questions we ask Him. When we see him face to face. But God does not have to give any account of his dealings to us. He's God. We're not. You gotta get that clear. When you get that clear, the rest is cake. It's like icing, or you know, it's it's you get the fact that you're not God. Everything's everything just falls into place. It's amazing the way it works. Now, no Christian in their right mind, and I I, uh, let me just emphasize right mind, uh, would deny the sovereignty of God. Nor would they deny the, the responsibility of man. But many pit them against each other as if they're competing for supremacy or that they're mutually exclusive or, or something like that. But here's the idea. Is that while we have a tough time reconciling the two, I want you to see that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are scripturally in perfect harmony. Perfect balance. Now today as we look at Romans chapter 9, we're going to see a lot of things. You're going to see God's election of believers. And by the way, there was no vote. We think of election as everyone cast their vote and No, 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 that's not what we mean by that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But God's elections of believers and human will, the free will of humans, and God's justice, and God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They're all in Romans chapter 9. But it's important to know that in context, they answer a burning question. They're not just there for their own good. There's a reason why they're in Romans chapter 9. You want to know that reason? The reason is this. The question, the burning question is this. How can God's people Israel be accursed and cut off from Christ if God's word is trustworthy? How can that be? How can it be, in verse 6 of chapter 9, that it is not as though the word of God has failed? How, How can it be? That's the issue that this chapter addresses. We need to Make that clear. And in the process, we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
So Romans 9 answers, explains why even though people reject him, that God's word has not failed. That's what it shows. That's what it explains. That God's sovereign grace then in Romans 9 is shown as the ground of his faithfulness in spite of man's rejection of Christ. It's the foundation for Romans chapter 8. God is faithful to his word. So let's, by way of intro to this passage, look with me at verse 3. Romans 9, 3. Israel is accursed, it says, and cut off from Christ. But, but here's the problem. It, God had promised something in Jeremiah 31, 33, that they would be his people and he would be their God. So what's wrong? It's a valid question. But Paul's answer in verse 6 is, it is not as though the word of God has failed. His explanation takes him into the realm of God's sovereign choice over human will. God's sovereignty over human will. He says in chapter 9 and verse 6, the last part of that, he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. True Israel consists, he says, of the children of promise. Verse 8, the children of promise are counted as offspring. It's not the children of flesh who are the children of God. Just because they were from from Israel doesn't mean that they were somehow going to have some universalist salvation. It was the children of the promise that were counted as offspring. And it was God's choice who those children of promise were would be if it's not God's choice he's not sovereign if it's our choice we are so verse 11 he gives an example of of Jacob and Esau and the the example shows God's ultimate sovereignty in choosing who will receive the promise which raises a question regarding God's justice I love the fact that God knew that these questions would come up, so they're right here in the text. So we don't even have to bring them up. We just read. God's made it very simple for us here. So the question of, well, is is God unfair then? Why would he find fault if he is the one who wills and, and who decides, and if it is ultimately God's free sovereign choice of grace, if he is free to choose whom he wills and harden whom he wills, and it doesn't depend upon man, why does he still find fault? That's the question. Verse 19. You will say to me, Paul says, you will say it. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his his will? So there's questions. There's, there's a lot of questions. It's a big mystery to some extent. It's one that people grapple with today. And we're going to only scratch the surface. But look with me back at verse 5. Verse 5, he's, he's pouring out his heart about the pain and the anguish he feels over his, his kinsmen who are rejecting Christ. And he says, I'd rather be accursed than them if it would mean that their salvation. And, and he says, and from their race, according to the flesh is, is the Christ, the God incarnate. We spoke of him last week. Who is what? God over all. There's God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all. 
The Bible teaches that God is sovereign and man is responsible. The first is a great doctrinal truth that stands as the capstone and pinnacle of all great biblical truths. The other is a fact of life. It's a biblical truth that causes us to take an honest look at, look at our own condition before God and our response to Him as we realize that we will be held accountable for our thoughts and our words and our actions and that God is perfectly just in doing so. So we're dealing with the infinite and the finite. We're dealing with the realm of God and, and man and, and we know where we land in that and, and God is sovereign. And so you've got two seemingly contradictory truths to finite minds. It's almost like oil and water. How do the two go together? Well, let me just say as we open this up that many have tried to figure it out and in the process they have overemphasized one to the exclusion of another. And what results is error of some kind. Is what happens when finite man meets infinite God and tries to explain infinite God in finite terms. We end up going further than the Bible does sometimes. Misconstruing the Bible teaching, twisting God's intent. If we overemphasize God's sovereignty, many people will say, well, you just make men into puppets or robots. Someone said to me this week, uh, or, or zombies. And I'm like, no, that's different. Zombies aren't like robots and puppets. Not that I should know or anything. But if we overemphasize God's sovereignty, it seems like we would just be on automatic pilot. That's what many people would, will, will go. If we overemphasize man's responsibility, we make God into a robot or a puppet, or if some people say a vending machine that gives us everything we want. That's what some people think about God. You're God if you think that about God. You think you are, at least. But if we overemphasize one or the other, I tell you, both errors are harmful. But the second is worse because we essentially make man God, but both diminish a true knowledge of who God is. We don't want to do that. We want to take God at his word. We don't want to deny biblical truth. We don't want to grossly enlarge biblical truth. We want to take it as it is. So let's look at God's sovereignty. And again, it's, it's really based in this passage. And God overall is, is the summary of sovereignty. And, and uh, it, it means that God rules as king overall. A sovereign is a king. When we speak of his sovereignty, we speak of his kingdom. His ruling as the supreme ruler over all. That he has authority over all. That he is the maker and sustainer and ruler. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord established his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. So when we say to God, God, you are God and I am not. We're basically acknowledging his sovereignty and our accountability to him. Without this great doctrine, everything falls down. It is helpful to identify what God is sovereign over. This is an easy one. Everything. With a capital E. Underline it, bold it. Everything. He's sovereign over everything. If not, he is not sovereign. No one is above him. No one gives him orders. He's entirely self-sufficient. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Job. Job goes through 
the most horrific circumstances. And what do we read Job saying at the end of this this run with God? He says in verse 1 of chapter 42, I, he says to God, Job answers God and says, I know that you can do all things because no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he's over all. Now we live in a culture where the sovereignty of God is regularly rejected, repudiated, not even brought into the discussion. And man's so-called autonomy, or you could read that pseudo-sovereignty, is flaunted. That's the air that we breathe in our culture. And nothing but the Word of God, applied by the Spirit of God, into the people of God, is going to counteract that. God is good. And interestingly, He allows in mercy and grace and, and wisdom in His design for humans, such as us, to think and act and, and operate in the world He created in such a way that we can blame no one but ourselves for our, for our decisions and the outcomes and our destiny. We call it man's responsibility. You can say accountability if you want. It's the idea of man under God. Where do you see it in Romans chapter 9? It pretty much permeates the whole idea. If God is over all, then man is under God. So there's the, the given. It doesn't really have to be even spoken, but you do see it. So where do you see it? Let me point out just two ways. One, uh, verse 32. Verse 32. Romans 9. Israel did not pursue it by faith, as it were, but, it, but as if it were based on works. What? The righteousness of God. And as it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. There's their responsibility before God. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, so there is a consequence to that stumbling. God says, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes, meaning they don't stumble over it, believes will not be put to shame, meaning if you do stumble over it, you will be put to shame. You will suffer loss. You will incur God's wrath, righteous wrath on your sin. Another place I'll I'll show you is go to Romans chapter 10 and verses 20 and 21. Isaiah is so bold as to say this. God is saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. There's God's sovereign choice. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. They're accountable to God for that disobedience and that contrariness. Man under God. And what are we responsible for? We will be held responsible by God for our sin. For our response to God. For our thoughts and our words and our actions. We are not responsible to choose ourselves to be saved. We are not responsible to give ourselves human life. We can't do either one. And we're basically not responsible for any of God's things. 
The org chart is really clear. The, the chain of command is clear. We will be held accountable to God for the things that he expects of us. Romans 3.19 tells us that, that, that all the world is accountable to God. All the world is accountable to God. It doesn't matter if they say they're not. They are accountable to God. No one can blame God or any other man for his own actions and choices. Those in heaven will praise God's grace. Those in hell will have only themselves to blame. And um, that's where the discussion gets sticky. Uh, when you talk about man's responsibility and the discussion turns to free will. And free will is choosing according to our desires. We have free will. We choose according to what we want. We're actually not going to talk about that today. I know you want to, but we're going to talk about that in two weeks. I want to. <laughs> it's a juicy topic. I mean, come on, let's go. But I'll tell you, uh, Jonathan Edwards, in, in, the, in, in his book, The Freedom of the Will, defined the will as that by which the mind chooses. It's very simple. Humans make choices. No one's going to deny that. We have free will. What we're going to have to figure out is what is our will free to choose? Okay? Now, before we look at man's will, that's on September 5th, we're going to look at God's will. That's what we're going to do for the basis, uh, the rest of our time today. Uh, what, what is God's will? It's what he wants. It's what he purposes. It's what he does. And it is both hidden and revealed. There are certain things that we can know and there are certain things we can't know yet. But only God knows. So you dive into the deep end of the pool in verse 11 of Romans chapter 9. Paul did it. The Holy Spirit took him there. We're going to follow. Number, uh, chapter 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born, speaking of the, the two kids, Jacob and Esau, uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Now, you might want to try to explain that away in, in human, self-sufficient terms, but I don't want to be in that conversation with you. The, the, the word of God says it. I'm going to believe it. Now, we're going to look at man's will at another time, but right now we're looking at God's will, and it says here that he has a purpose of election what the word of god says in the context of salvation it's what god accomplishes on the basis of the shed blood of christ and not on the basis of any human merit or worthiness or work ephesians 2 verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not as a result of works, so no one can boast you can't go there but election is what is named in this verse. And in the context of salvation, what is election? Election is the act of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, he chose in Christ whom he would save. That's election. That's the biblical doctrine of election. It's the biblical teaching that says that God chooses and knows who will be saved. It is not that he looked down the corridor of time and knew who would choose him. That's man being sovereign. That's man trying to explain away God's elected, sovereign election. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. I don't know of any more clear statement of God's sovereign 
choice in salvation than this. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It wasn't according to our will or what he knew our will would be. It was according to the purpose of his will. It's very clear. Now, it does not counsel out or contradict man's responsibility to repent and believe, trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to, to Nicodemus who came to him at night for fear, out of fear, and he, he's asking him about what it meant to follow him, and Jesus says, you must be born again. We're going to get into that again in a couple of weeks. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be regenerated by God? But verse 18 of John 3 says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Oh, you know who said this, by the way? Jesus, okay? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You can write down uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 if you want. You can go there. But let me keep moving. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. Verse 19. You will say to me then, Paul says, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It's not our place. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? It's his choice. We don't have a choice in the matter. He has the right as the potter over the clay. We're the clay. That's an inanimate object, by the way, that we're being uh, uh, compared to. And he's the potter who molds the clay to do whatever he wants. And we have trouble wrapping our finite minds around that truth. But it stands, mysterious as it is, it stands. I came across something that I wrote 25 years ago when I was in seminary, back in 1985. It was a paper on the doctrine of election. And I know it's kind of weird to quote yourself, but I'm going to do it, okay? (laughs) Forgive me. I just thought it was kind of cool. 25 years ago, but here's what I wrote. The doctrine of election is grounds for encouragement. There is great encouragement in knowing that the work of God is initiated and sustained by God himself. There is also excitement in knowing that as his instruments, God chooses and uses people he has brought into a saving relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. For the outworking of his purposes, God couples his omniscience and omnipotence with the efforts of his people, energized with power by the Holy Spirit. And here is an interesting point. God uses the elect to reach the elect. Those who know Jesus are sent out to reach those who are not yet aware of their future standing with God. They don't even know they're going to choose to follow Jesus. They don't even know they're going to want to choose to follow Jesus. And God leaves this a mystery to those who he sends. He knows all about it, and he, he, show, he sends us out with the gospel message of salvation. That's it. The Lord knows those who are his. 2 Timothy 2.19. God knows we don't. I think it's pretty amazing that we offer the gospel to any who will receive it. And some accept what God has done, others reject it. It's not our job. 
to, fig- to, make them, to make them believe it. Some of you have been having conversations with people and you're trying to argue them into the kingdom of God and it won't work. You gotta uh, preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust God with the results. It's not your job to, to get them saved. It's just your job to be faithful to present the gospel, to preach the gospel. So the doctrine of election goes together with the universal offer of salvation. And I don't even remember who I was quoting in this paper, but I wrote, in fact, quote, the doctrine of election is never taught apart from the universal offer of salvation. Check it. It's in the Bible. Just check it out. We got to close. We got we got more weeks we're going to go on this. I, I could keep going. I, I could keep going, but I'm sensitive to the time. So let me just, let me just say, uh, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that in chapter 9, the Holy Spirit knew, obviously, but Paul was anticipating objections. Look at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Why? Because he was going to be accused of lying about this. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? Because people were going to say, God's word failed. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. But people were going to say that God was not just. Verse 19. Who, you, will, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's, that's finding fault with God. He says, who are you to answer back to God? He knew these objections were going to be coming. You think this is controversial now? You should have seen it in the first century. In a Greco-Roman culture that lifted man up to the highest point, similar to ours. Hey, it was it was it was it was more it was more fighting words back then than it was now, even. So, as we close, let me just say this: questions. We're going to leave questions on the table. We're not going to wrap this thing up in a tidy little bow. We're going to leave the questions right on the table, and we're going to come back. The Lord willing, we'll come back in a couple weeks to this. Um, But I would just say this. Here's some of the questions that that are left on the table. Will the blood-brought promises of God that purchased our freedom hold true? Is there truly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Will he truly work all things together for our good and his glory? Will the predestined be called? And will the called be justified? And will the justified be glorified? Is there really? Is there really these things that are, that are set before us? Is it, is, it, is it really true? And I'm just going to say this. I'm so glad that Romans 9 follows Romans 8. So glad. God's word has not failed. And let me just give you a little preview. His covenant with Israel has not failed just because they've been unfaithful to him. Why? It's grounded in God's sovereignty. That's what we're talking about. It all, it's all, all the promises of God are grounded in God's sovereignty. Everything you came into this room with today that you're going, how's this going to work out? Why did I get this? Why did that happen? All those answers will come because they're, they're, they're covered by the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, we have no hope. Promises purchased by the blood of Christ will be performed by the sovereign hand of God. And that's going to lead us to thanksgiving, to gratitude to God for what he's done. That's going to lead us to a humble attitude towards God and say, when I pray, it's going to change because I'm presenting my request to God and I know he's sovereign and in his goodness, he's always going to do what is right. And I'm going to trust him because he's in control. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time, short as it is. And thank you, Lord, that you are 
in control. You are sovereign. You are over all. And thank you that we are under you. Thank you that, that it's not the other way around. Forgive us, Lord, when we, when, we, when we live as if it is. Lord, change us by your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.